Hey, what's up fam? Hope you're doing well. Um, this is a new promo uh, for a web show that I just started. Um, if you're following me on social, you've already seen it pass by on your feed. It's uh, Gomaluku Live, where I sit down with um, indigenous leaders and allies um, talking about leadership. And no, no, sorry. I'm, I'm telling this the wrong way. Um, what's in it for you is that you can get to pick their brains. Um, you get to ask questions and they get to uh, answer them directly live um, on the, lo the live stream. We're streaming to, at least we're starting off with Twitter, uh, Facebook, and YouTube. Um, you can just drop your uh, questions in there and we'll answer them live. Uh, so yeah, please tune in. I uh, would love to have um, you engage in that conversation. And this is your podcast. This is the Gomaluku Podcast. My friends, if you have not noticed already, um, this whole podcast is, um, yeah, trying to get people to stand on the shoulders of giants, um, share their their ideas, um, their routines, their habits, their style, and their successes, so that you can, um, yeah, um, use them as a model uh, for your own successes. I think maybe that could be a, a very a a a short synopsis of what, what this whole entire podcast uh, journey is about. Um, so that's why I think um, sitting down with Andre Carmen is also a, a very good one. I had dinner with her in Geneva um, with and um, Melanie Nielsen, a very good friend of mine, uh, was at the dinner as well. Um, Andre Carmen is from the Yaki Nation um, and also executive director of the International Indian Treaty Council. Um, Full transparency, I work a lot with uh, the IITC. Um, for example, I um, represent IITC in the negotiations on the new uh, treaty that's been created uh, under the United Nations flag uh, on uh, biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction. So basically trying to protect the uh, biodiversity of the high seas. Um, so very humbled and privileged to uh, represent IITC in the nego those negotiations. Um, uh, also, and let me know what you think about this this dinner conversation, by the way, uh, because um, just to give you an idea, um, when we go to the UN, it usually is like six n or nine hours um, trying to crush it, trying to be as very effective as possible um, in Geneva or in New York. And that amount of time usually doubles once we get to a, um, a COP, uh, a conference of parties or any summit. So... Um, so w whenever we get this to relax and sit down, it usually is like nine or ten in the evening, um, and we try to have dinner at the same time. So this dinner conversation, um, I get to uh, yeah, pick um, Andrea's brain, I guess. Um, so ho I hope you enjoy this episode. I needed this sustenance. Are you a breakfast person? No. Neither am I. But I've been eating breakfast because it's free with the okay, hotel. Yeah, right. Burger food? Um, I, I yeah. Think, yeah. Two seconds. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. No, I want to know all your secrets for how... Uh, so you don't eat breakfast? <laughs> not yet. Not, not yet. Yeah. You still didn't change in all these Not years. usually. I do Zumba, I believe. Yeah strongly in physical exercise. Okay. I yeah. always yeah. danced and worked out all my life. Okay. 
from when I was a little kid, I, I danced. We used to perform when I was in high school live on for Raiders games, you know, the, the Oakland Raiders mm -hmm. and Stanford University. We performed for when they didn't have their cheerleaders or something. Yeah. Um, but I love to dance. So I go to Zumba as much as possible. So I think working out, you know, however you do it, um, releases uh, toxins, you know, um, not just through sweat, but through your breath. Because we tend to breathe with the upper part of our lungs when we're, you know, doing this kind of thing, you know, sitting in the UN all day. <laughs> But you have to do something at least a few times a week where you're breathing with your whole lungs. And a lot of the toxins are released from your body with your exhale breath. But you have to be breathing deeply and sweating, you know, so. No, I love to, I, I if I don't, here at least there's a lot of walking. Walking more than I walk at home, I walk here. So, I think that, um, People don't get enough physical exercise, and it affects their mental state. Mm -hmm. You know, we're still meant, our bodies are meant to do physical exercise. So even if people run or, you know, whatever it is that they do, you know. But when it, you're in Geneva, then you also do Zumba or something? No, I never found some place to do it here. It was funny, I was staying um, with, a, with a Swiss and French family for all those years. We came all the time for the UN Declaration here. And um, Anne-Marie Von Art, she actually was on the Canton of Geneva Council. And then during the, you know, during the years, she became on the um, Switzerland uh, legislature, like congresswoman, we would say. And I asked her, I said, Henry, let's go, let's let's go like to the gym and work out, you know. And, and she laughed at me, she was probably my age, you know, and said, she says, you are so American. I don't even own a pair of tennis shoes. Says, we can walk around the city, but she'd walk in heels, you know, around and, you know, look, look very stylish. And she thought it was so funny, I would even, she said, we could go get a massage in the spa. <laughs> okay, that sounds good to me, but no, she just thought it was a big joke that I would even t invite her to go do exercises. But um, but I heard here there's Zumba. I just didn't bring anything for it. And we, you know, the time is so short here, really. That, you know, the production of going somewhere you don't know and signing up or paying and you know, taking your clothes and all those things just seems like one too many things. Right. But I, as soon as I go back, I'm going to go back to my classes. Do you also do, you also do Zumba when we're all in New York? Mm -hmm. Do you forum? Yeah. You do? Oh, probably. In, At the Vanderbilt. Oh, the Y. Yeah. Oh, oh, right. Of course, yeah. They have all kinds of classes. And I joined the Y in Tucson, even though there's one closer that I always go to. Right. I joined the Y just because they have an away program. So, you know, it's really expensive to go to the Vanderbilt, you know, That's for it. like a day or classes or whatever. Oh. Yeah, it's really expensive, like $30 or something. 
for it to, wow. So what I do is sign up for the Y before I go someplace where I'm going to be in New York a long time, like permanent form. I go sign up and then pay a couple months and it's still worth it, you know. Oh, okay. I pay a month in Tucson what it would cost me, you know, for uh, a day in <laughs> New York. Right. But yeah, I start to feel it when I'm not working out. Um, you know, three, four days I can do it. Here I walk a lot, so it's not, you know, I don't, I don't feel deprived. But in other places, if I don't exercise, I start to feel like I'm not functioning fully. Plus, you know, there's the blood supply to your brain. Yeah, you gotta have the, the, your brain, you know, needs needs that blood and oxygen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that's why people say I don't change, I don't age. I do, of course. Huh. You know, but um, but yeah, but yeah, that's my secret. My my main secret is physical ex aerobic exercise means you gotta sweat and you gotta breathe hard. You gotta be breathing deeply. And of course moisturizer. Yeah. <laughs> <Huh>. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. I could say great sex, but you know. <laughs> we have not turned on. La 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 la. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. You're my boss, so you know, I don't want to hear that. <laughs> like imagining your mother. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> oh. Even no. though they know where they came from, but they just don't want to imagine it. <laughs> Especially when I'm the kind of guy that has a very visual. I'm very visual. No. So like when. Sorry, I said we don't need to keep talking about it. <laughs> no, but yeah. She wanted to know my secret of, of eternal youth, right? No. Next topic, please. <laughs> okay, I'm going to tell you. You're going to ask me. How I think I got started in this work. Yeah, so. <laughs> oh my god. Oh. Now people are listening, right? <laughs> now they're listening. Oh, I got yeah. their attention. So. No, we, we all had, of course, our, our moments that we knew we had to. We had to step up for our rights or we had to do something for a well-being of our peoples um, like some people call it uh, like the, the aha moment like ah this is what I'm this is what I have to do for the, not for the rest of my life but for my people um, so I'm very interested I asked I asked pretty much everyone that question um, what made you this like how did you get into this involved in this movement? because how long have you been doing this well it's a matter of uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll, I'll tell you my story you can decide okay yeah <laughs> okay fair enough um, yeah because I think that we were doing this work um, or I could say we that are doing this work in the International Treaty Council, at least, um, are drawn to it spiritually, that we made that choice, um, maybe from our past life, 
you know, maybe when we were unformed in the spirit world, for the moment at least, um, that we made a choice to come back for a purpose. So I don't necessarily think, we, we can say a lot of things reinforce that, but I think we came here for this. And I think we can say we have a choice whether we want to do it. Sometimes we get really tired of it, you know, I'm writing a grant and we don't have any money and I got to figure out how to pay the staff or, um, you know, things don't go like usual, you know, mm -hmm. at the UN everything we wanted or everything we think should have happened but I don't think that I've ever been at the point where I seriously thought I don't want to do this anymore I want to do something else I want to get a regular job where someone else has to worry about how I'm going to get paid yeah. you know um, someone else has to make the decision so another reason why I love Zumba is because I have an hour where I'm being told what to do by somebody else Someone else is calling all the shots, even when we can stop and get a drink, you know, that kind okay. of thing. It's so blissful to not have to make decisions. It's like a break for me, you know. But I think that we chose this, you know, spiritually. And we're guided to it spiritually. So we may have had many experiences that reinforced that. We came for that. And I think it was probably in our eyes, the moment of our birth. I have three boys, and all of them carried their spirit and their personality that they have now. One passed away when he was four, but I have other two that are now adults. Mm -hmm. And they have carried that personality um, and their being with them from the moment of their birth. And I think probably that's how it was with us, you know, too. So... One thing that I was thinking of from your question um, was when I was in fourth grade, you know, 10 years old probably, and they still have this, amazingly enough. They have uh, the fourth graders in California, which is where I was a fourth grader, um, have a, a study of the history of California. And the focus is the missions and how the Spaniards came up from Mexico and established all of these missions and Catholicized basically everybody and enslaved the Indians and forced them to build the missions and you know fought them with their soldiers if they tried to rebel and resist but I was in fourth grade so uh, the mission that I had to make out of paper mache was uh, Santa Inez mission which is by Santa, Santa Barbara yeah. but we were planning an end-of-the-year play in our class and I was the only Indian or indigenous uh, kid in the class. It was a working class uh, neighborhood and I had my two long braids down my back which I wore every day. So I was picked to be the Indian, right, in the school play. And this kind of chubby kid wearing a brown um, bathrobe played uh, Father Unipero Sarah, who by the way despite a lot of protests by California Indians, has been made a saint by the Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah. So, Father Sarah, he was, and, and my, my line was I had to get down on my knees and kiss his ring, right, and, and say, thank you, Padre, for bringing us God. That was my line in fourth grade in the school play that we were practicing for the, the whole school for the end of the year, the elementary yeah. school. 
So at recess, I took a softball and threw it at the back of my teacher's head. I had no idea why. I didn't know the real history of California. I didn't know who Father Unibrosera laid. Later, of course, we were involved in all the protests and, mm -hmm. you know, when the when they came to canonize him and all that in, you know, California. But then, I had no idea, but I knew it was wrong. In my gut, I knew it was wrong. So I went home and I wouldn't go back for the rest of the school year, which was probably around two weeks. This was towards the end of the school year. Right. And my father was very mad at me. He wanted me, you know, he was, you know, we have to get an education. But my mother was understanding, and she she let me stay home. I said I had a stomach ache, and you know I don't know what I said, but she let me stay home. So I never finished fourth grade. Okay. But that's the reason, and I think of it now because you know California Indians still talk about that. Of course, you know we're very involved in, you know, we're updating our film Gold, Greed, and Genocide about the history of California Indians and including the missions and the gold rush and everything that happened to basically, you know, commit genocide against oh. them. So half, half of the tribes in California aren't even recognized, you know, as being tribal. They don't have land base and, and uh, you know, there's a whole history around that, including the 49ers, right? The gold miners yeah. who are still glorified, you know, despite the, you know, obliteration of the California tribes that came apart with that. But first it was the missions. So, I don't necessarily think that that galvanized me, but it was a, it was definitely a point in which I resisted as a ten-year-old without even knowing why. And I really do feel that we have this in in us, all of us. You do, you know, too. There's a reason why we're born in the families that we're born into, and that the decisions of our destiny become unveiled as we move forward but I think we come with that and um, when I when I was a lot older I started working you know for the treaty I started as a student intern working on the issue of uh, the forced sterilization that was going on as a matter of government policy by the United States um, government through Indian Health Service you mm -hmm. know in Indian clinics Rocky Boy you know, Claremore Oklahoma Rosebud, a lot of places, and we started the first organization, CASA was called Coalition Against Sterilization Abuse, that really focused on this, and um, I went, you know, in those young days to one of our treaty conferences, uh, I think it was Sisseton, South Dakota, and I made friends with an elder pipe carrier, you know, from um, Crow Creek, Reservation. Her name was Stella Pretty Sounding Flute. Beautiful name, wow. right? But she was really interested. She and her sister would be there at our proclaimed starting time, like 9 a.m. They brought their lawn chairs and they'd set up. Of course, we'd start like an hour later or whatever, mm -hmm. but she wanted to have a chance to talk to Rigoberta Menchu and some of the indigenous women from Guatemala and other places. And you know, she couldn't. She didn't speak Spanish. So mm -hmm. I ended up translating. And then I ended up just talking with her for a while. And at the end, at the end um, of the conference, they asked her to do a closing prayer. And she gave, she called me up and gave me a beautiful shawl she made that I used in Sundance after that. But um, 
at the very, very end, when everyone was packing up their teepees and tents and getting ready to drive away, she called me over and I went and talked to her. And she said, I want to tell you something. I want to tell you that the old-time Indians, the ones that survived the massacre at Wounded Knee, that was 1890, where the cavalry came in and killed, you know, mainly elders and women and children, said the old-time Indians, the ones that they found in the snow at Wounded Knee, you know, still clinging to their mothers, those babies. So they, they grew up and as they became elders, they told us that the spirits of the people that were killed at Wounded Knee, they were waiting for someone to stand up for them. This is exactly what she said. And when She said, when Dennis Banks and the Means Boys went to the next Wounded Knee and stood up, stood up for us, um, that's when those spirits, you know, became yeah, became satisfied. Right. And they they came back to us, you know. And she said, and that's why you young people have been able to go overseas, she said, um, to that UN over there and do what you've done because you don't have any money and you don't know what you're doing. But it's because those spirits are leading you and they're behind you. And all those years, especially in the darkest moments when we were working on the U.S. Declaration, I could feel them in the room. Not only those spirits, but the spirits of, of the people that my grandma saw massacred when she was 12, you know, our people, and all of us. I could feel them in the room. Because it was the same thing. We didn't have any money. We, didn't, we had no idea what we were doing. No one had ever done that before, what we did at the U.N. Declaration. As Saul Vicente Vasquez, one of my board members, said, every strategy is dangerous, every single one that was being proposed. No one knew how it was going to come out. Was this a big mistake to even start this, you know, in a way that could restrict our rights in the long run? You know, what was going to happen? You know, and everyone had to follow their own principles and, you know, their own guesses about what was the best way to, to move forward. And, of course, the instruction of our elders and leaders as yeah. well. But those spirits, you know, they were in the room. I could feel them. I could feel them. Mm -hmm. You know, so when you say, how did I start doing this? Of course, I could say, well, I, you know, started working on sterilization. And then our faculty advisor, Lehman Brightman, introduced me to Bill Wapipaw around the Treaty Council office, and it was just a couple years old. It was like 1975. It was founded in 1974. Mm. Um, so all of those things, you know, are true. But at the same time, the truth is that I think all of us were destined. You know, we came here to do this. Right. And so all the things that have reinforced that and guided us to how we're going to do it, where we're going to do it, who we're going to do it with, the way we're going to do it, um, are just the extra things that are that are pulling us along. Mm -hmm. But I don't feel really like I have any choice. I don't feel like it's a big sacrifice, even though it is. It's a struggle. It's hard on our families, you know. We have to explain to our kids and now grandkids really well why we're doing this and why yeah. we're gone for their birthday and all those things. Uh, but I think more it's that, that we were meant to do it and we wouldn't be who we were if we weren't doing it. I couldn't, right now, I couldn't imagine a different life. Actually. No, it's, it's, that's it's, how it is. It's like some people 
come into it and then they move on to something yes. else. That's why when people say, well, the international level and local level, I say there are no levels. We're all doing the same work. Yeah. Some people, maybe the most important people, are the ones teaching language to the kids in the tribal schools, mm -hmm. you know, or in their families and making sure that happens or, you know, carrying out the ceremonies where we go to get revitalized and regenerated, you know. I mean, we're all doing the same work and it's all part of the same big circle. I think what we do need is to communicate with each other more so we can uplift each other's work and support each other in, in what we're doing because it's all just as important. Yeah. But the most important is probably on the ground, you know, on the grassroots level. And that's what we're trying to do at the UN is to back that up, protect right. it, protect the people doing it, you know, make the policies um, so that they can do it easier and better and, you know, without so much struggle. But we're, we're kind of backing them up, you know, is what I feel is our, our grassroots people. So, our spiritual leaders, our knowledge holders, our youth, um, our elders, all of those who are, you know, mm -hmm. the, the grassroots activists, you could say. Most of whom will never have an interview and never will never know who they are, you know, in your community, in my community, but, you know, they're the most important ones, so we have to be here to support them. You know, yeah. I, I did mention, you know, about the massacre. That was another probably pivotal moment for me in understanding this work is um, you know, we used to take care of my grandma uh, when she was you know in her 80s and, and kind of too frail to live on her own even though you know she was still you know very capable and she would stay with us and uh, I used to hear her because my room was right next to her she'd like wake up crying in the night and talking in her sleep and you know, I'd go in there to see, you know, what was the matter with her, and, you know, if she had a bad dream or what. And that's my nana, my, my, my grandma, my yaki grandma. And um, she wouldn't remember. I'd give her water. I said, you know, in Spanish, I said, what happened? What, what were you dreaming about? She says, no, no, nothing. But she'd be talking until she woke up. She said, they're bayoneting them. They're cutting their throats and be crying like a little girl. Mm -hmm. So finally, whether it was right or wrong, I don't know, but I, I pushed her, I was maybe 19, I pushed her to, uh, oh, hi, here's our food. Someone, some, someone for you? Okay. Thank you so much. Oh, you two picked the lamb ricks, lamb ricks? Yeah. Oh, oh pardon. Sorry. Do you have chili? Sorry. Oh, merci. No. The sauce. Pico? No. Do you have olive oil with, with yeah. Merci. Yeah, this looks good. Yum, yum. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I'll no, I'll finish my story. Yeah. We're in a restaurant. Yeah. You can't tell that. Um, they just brought our food. Um, so I, you know, she, she would really not remember you know, what she had been dreaming about or, or, you know, crying about in her sleep. And I pressed her and pressed her, whether it was right or wrong, I don't know. I, I kind of got, um, felt bad when I went to some of the Truth and Reconciliation um, Commission hearings in Canada for the boarding schools because uh, the elders would, would be saying too that they, 
they, they really couldn't remember and they didn't want Merci. to remember. Merci. Merci. And they felt more traumatized when they were pressed to remember. Mm -hmm. But I felt at the time that it would help her if she could remember. And she never, you know, she never was mad at me for, for pressing her. But she finally um, began to remember and told me a little bit about what had happened. And so I went to our chief on Samo Valencia and told him about it. And, and she was 12 years old, she said. And she hid behind a rock with her little brother and watched you know, people in her family be slaughtered. Mm. And he told me what happened. It was a famous incident, or infamous, I guess, in because we were at war till 1939 from the 1500s with Mexico, well, Spain first, and Mexico yeah. and France, and um, it finally was settled with the treaty. The Yaquis have the only treaty of any Indian nation in Mexico with the government of Mexico. And 1939 decreto, they call it the decree of President Lázaro Cárdenas recognizing the Yaqui land base in order to make the peace. Mm -hmm. But this was 1912. She was 12 years old. And he said that what happened, there's still, the church is still there. It's a big stone Catholic church, just maybe, I don't know, 50 yards at the most from the border. And the wall is there, and, you know, because there is a wall mm -hmm. in Nogales, separating Nogales, Mexico from Nogales, Arizona. But she's, uh, he told me that um, the Mexican government offered to have a, a peace um, treaty. Uh, with the Yaqui soldiers, the fighters, the guerrilla fighters, you know, community members, yeah. and um, told them that first they would come in and have mass in the Catholic Church, and they needed to leave their families and all their weapons outside, so they did. The Yaquis, through the, the um, history of colonization, became, on one level, uh, Catholics. Yeah. So, they went in there to do the mass, and when they came out, uh, they killed them, the, the Yaqui men that had gone in there. And she was, you know, a family member, 12 years old, and she hid her little brother um, behind a rock and you know, watched what had happened. And that's what she was you know, having these dream flashbacks about that she couldn't remember when she woke up. So. Um, she did write her affidavit. I wrote it down and got it notarized, and you know, for the history of our people, because it wasn't the first. And then after, it wasn't the first time that happened to, to people in our family. Mm -hmm. So they um, fleed across the border then and came to Tucson, Arizona. And they told her, don't speak Yaqui outside the house. You know, don't let them know because they'll come for us again. I mean, the whole family and generations were traumatized by it. Yeah. And I definitely began to see traits in my own personality that are known to be traits of massacre victims, you know, that are then passed down, you know, intergenerationally. My mother certainly had that too. We don't talk about bad stuff. We don't, you know, don't rock the boat. And of course, the work I'm doing is the opposite of that, but it's more manifest on a personal level, yeah. you know, I think. But anyway, you know, through that experience and understanding, you know, the trauma that all of the indigenous peoples have been through, you know, talking to people like Stella, pretty sounding fluid about the massacre that wounded me, mm -hmm. you know, understanding.
understand, beginning to understand first just by gut instinct what happened in California when the missionaries came and yeah. enslaved the Indians. You know, these, these are the bad things that, that have happened to us. But to me, it's a real honor to be in the position to fight for those, uh, not just the spirits of those you know that that happened to, but those that are alive today and the future generations. Yeah. You know, we're all here because it's it's really the greatest thing to do, and I think for most of us, it's the only thing to do. You know, so it's about people say oh, it's a sacrifice. It's a big, it's not. It's it's a blessing to me, mm. you know, and um, I'm honored to be able to do this work and to yeah. be in the position that um, I'm able to not just influence what happens, but also, you know, pass on the experiences and the teachings and the inspiration to new generations of leaders, mm -hmm. because that was done for me you know, by my leaders. So I think. Um, you know, I can't imagine. I can imagine someplace I'd rather be but, than Geneva. <laughs> but <laughs> so I can't imagine any place that I'd rather be than the indigenous rights movement. Right. Hmm. So eat your food. Oh, sorry. No. <laughs> Let's eat. eat a little bit. <laughs> How was that? Oh, so, well, something actually that, that I've, been, I've been thinking about for a very long time is, and you, you, you talked about it a little bit, and it's something that I think we, Indian peoples in general, are not talking about it enough. And that's intergenerational trauma. Um, I don't know why though, but I think that we should be having that discussion a little bit more. Uh, yeah, I mean, not a discussion, but a conversation about that. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of, uh, you know, I had to confront some things in Treaty Council that I kind of hope would go away if I didn't talk about it or confront it. Uh -huh. and, you know, and then I had, of course, friends and Jackie and other people that said, look, you don't deal with this. I don't want to hear about it, you know, anymore. And... Uh, is going to have to take it on and it was tough to go through it because I'd let it go so long kind of that by the time I finally raised it it was like you know how come you're raising this now yeah. <laughs> but, but but it was a good thing and it came out well right. you know, it took a few years to mm -hmm. settle settle itself but I think we talk about it but almost automatically you know like okay here's this thing like traditional knowledge, here's this thing, you know? Yeah. Intergenerational trauma, and of course they talk a lot about it in Canada because of the whole truth and reconciliation yeah. process. But what does it mean? What does it mean for us on a day-to-day -day basis, you know? What does it mean for us? Like my grandma, my, my mom wasn't allowed to talk about how her dad had disappeared. He was the really? organizer of Yaki's and the railroad um, building and he'd be gotten death threats and that was my grandma's husband right? mm -hmm. and when he didn't come home anymore when she was eight years old they weren't she and her two sisters were not allowed to even ask my nana what happened to him 
because she was still reliving that trauma, you know, that she'd been through. We, we had that when, um, you know, we were at the treaty conference last summer at Bear Butte, and the elders were talking about how children were being forcibly separated on the border and put in cages. They were totally reliving their, you know, being taken to boarding schools mm -hmm. and what had happened to them there. And, you know, they knew this new generation of little kids were in for a lifetime of, you know, traumatic impact. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, you know, that just all of the violence that we have experienced, you know, if not now, then definitely generationally. Definitely, they say now studies show that it affects your genetic makeup and your cells, that trauma. Hmm. You know, what, what is the effect of that? I mean, we talk about lateral violence and, you know, how it's so much easier to uh, attack each other than it is to go after the real enemy. <laughs> yeah. Willie told me a story today. He says there was a pretty famous Indian guy who has a radio program. Okay. That he hears, he was driving, he said he had to pull over. Just to hear that he said, well, one thing that I've been hearing is that, you know, uh, Indian people have been, been being accused of being terrorists, you know, indigenous people. And so I really started thinking about it. And uh, I realized there's a big difference between uh, in Canada, so he's saying Indian people and yeah. terrorists, you know. It says terrorists, they hate America, they hate the governments, you know. And Indian people hate each other. <laughs> Willie said he had to pull over and just, and, you know, just he was laughing so hard. But, you know, it's, <laughs> it's true <laughs> when you think about it. You know? I recognize it. Yeah. I recognize it. I think that's a big part, you know, yeah. of colonization. My chief said if the Yaquis lose our land, it's going to be because of the Yaquis, not the Yoris, which is our word for the people from outside. Mm. You know, it's like we, that's what it was so amazing about the Masakova, you know, that when we went down there at the end of May and talked to our traditional authorities about what was happening with the Masakova and mm -hmm. what the position of the Arizona spiritual leaders was for it and about the repatriation, they completely concurred and agreed but all eight pueblos signed the resolution supporting the position, forming a transboundary Masakova committee, and which is what we have now. And, okay. you know, and based on that, the Mexican government wrote a letter of support and also stated that they have no claim over the Masakova, which is the, for the first time a national government has said the repatriation has to go back to the indigenous peoples, yeah. even though it was so-called collected in Mexico mm -hmm. in 1936 or something. But it was really important because, you know, the UNESCO processes, it goes back to the country and then they can give it back to the yeah. indigenous peoples. And they're saying no. And the UN Declaration says no. This is between the indigenous peoples and the state's concern. Yeah. You know, the repatriation of our sacred, sacred objects and human remains. So it was, it, it was so powerful, so unifying, that all eight of the traditional governments signed. And I think the Mexican government even was shocked, because that never happened. Always one is never know, happened mad before, about. It hasn't, I'm sure it has happened, but okay. I don't know what's okay, happening. Yeah. Enough. And the, wor the work that I've been doing with our Yaqui, and we have, there's a traditional government. 
their you know, unbroken traditional governments, yeah. you know. So on our, there's eight of them in Ryoyaki, uh, but they all signed the support. Mm -hmm. And for the the position of that Yaki's from Arizona, so it's also trans border, yeah. which is really important too, because you can imagine we're the same people, same ceremony, same language, but the difference between the United States and Mexico is a lot, and and um, so naturally there can be some you know divisions without people even meaning for there to be. Even the economic level, and you know, just a lot of the, the language is much, much more spoken in Mexico. Okay. You know, for instance, because they're more isolated, and yeah. you know, just a lot of these. Um, my husband didn't speak any, uh, you know, and he yeah. didn't speak Spanish until he was about 16. He only spoke Yaqui in the community. Yeah. So it's still, or was then at least, a fluent language. You know? yeah. So. Yeah, you know, the, the, so, so that's a good example of this work we're doing at the UN, helping to unify our communities, you know, as long as we always bring back the information to them. Right. You know? So how does, how does the Yaqui people govern themselves then? Because divided by the borders between U.S. and Mexico, yeah. you have a, like a governing system or, like you said, you have pueblos. But. We have independent governments in each pueblo. Okay. In Mexico, this is traditional government. Any decision affecting all the Yaquis, and especially about the land, has to be made by consensus of, of um, the the eight pueblos. You know, in recent years, they're they're lucky if they can get six. But yeah. That's enough. You know, the majority now, but it should be by consensus of all of them. Mm. And in the United States, we weren't federally recognized until 1979. In fact, today is Recognition Day. Yaki oh. Recognition Day. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm, they already uh, texted me to see if I could make enchiladas for the cocineros, which are the cooks. Yeah. I'm in the traditional cook society. And while we're making tortillas, we then feed the ladies, you know, yeah. the women. And, um, they asked me, I said, no, I'm in Geneva. Boy, <laughs> I, boy I wish I could. Right. Can you make your yummy enchiladas? You know? Is your specialty? One of them. One of them? What one was the other one? Then? I make sal really good salsa, too. Chili salsa right. with tomatoes and fresh jalapenos and onions and garlic. And, yeah. You know, All right. to put on top of food. Yeah. <laughs> or chips you can dip. Um, but yeah, that's one of my specialties. I get asked to make a lot. Yeah. But I have to say, I'm a good cook. I'm a I believe you. Yeah, I believe I'm you. A, yeah. That's one of my favorite things. Yeah, my like, mother and grandmother were really good cooks, too. And what, what do you... Because you're always on the road uh, as a, as a like, for treaty council, and not for treaty council, it's for probably the facilitated working group or what, whatever role, role we have. But like, we'd almost, it would seem that you don't have any free time like to, to have, like, do stuff that you like. So, like, you, said, you just now said, like, cooking. I like cooking. Like, all right, that's, that's, that's new. Like, that's, well, I didn't I, know I that I about Andrea. I all the time. And plus, I'm in the traditional cook society, the cocineras, for a ceremony. Right. I'm also really good flower maker. We make paper flowers to decorate the ramada because 
in our language, um, the word for the spirit world is mm -hmm. Sewahuya, which means flower wilderness. Okay. Not garden, wilderness, yeah, right? Yeah, okay. And, and so we decorate the inside of the Ramada where the deer dancer dances um, with all these flowers. Right. And I'm good at that, and I actually decorate the Ramada. That's my mandra from our chief, Gaston. Oh. I recruit people from my family and other people to help. It's a lot. All right. And we make, um, the ladies make flowers before a ceremony. Mm -hmm. So oh. um, I'm good at that, and I like to do it. I'm, an, I'm home as much as I can be, and luckily we have a lot of really skilled, um, energetic uh, people in the, in the International Indian Treaty Council, mainly, you know, younger generations of people doing this work. Like yeah. right now, the Climate Summit is in New York, and Janine Yazzie is heading up our team over there. Yeah. You know, so I don't have to go to everything. No, okay. <laughs> well, I'm not saying that you have to go, but... Um, at least from my experience, um, I don't work as much as you do, and I already have difficulties trying to balance it. Because um, going to, oh, well, first you're in New York, then you're in Geneva, then you're in Bonn or wherever. Um, yeah, I really had to think about it before I accepted to be on the new UN body facilitated working group. But there's two reasons why I did. Hmm. One is there's probably nothing more important we're working on right now than climate change. True. And wow. the second thing is it's the first time in all these 44 years where we've actually had direct representation. You know, rather no. than being selected by the chair of ECOSOC or president of the Human Rights Council like MRIP and Permanent Forum are, this is the very first time we've had direct representation on an equal basis of states in the UN body, so no. I kind of wanted to be part of that. I, I tend to, like right after the, right after adoption, I probably up until the first facilitator work group, um, I don't know about you, well, well, what do you think? But I don't think that people actually understand like how big a accomplishment that was. That we finally have what, like you said, direct uh, that we can directly elect our, our our members and that the members are equal with states. And they and what I hear is that a lot of them say, "Well, it's just climate change." But I'm like, "Well, if you look at it, it is like you said, it is what it is a global threat, but it is significant." You gotta you have to acknowledge that this is this has not happened before I know. at this high at this high level. Well, I think it's kind of amazing. A couple things. One is um, that of all the bodies where we worked at, this is probably one that excluded us most systematically. We couldn't yeah. even get in the room for the negotiations just to listen. Yeah. You know, in Paris at COP21, mm -hmm. couldn't even get in the room. Oh. The other thing is, and how many times, you know, do we demonstrate and, you know, all those things. I have that in my slideshow. Cancun, Copenhagen, us marching, uh -huh. demanding rights and participation. You know, of all of them, this is probably one of the worst. And I can only, and, and with the participation, I was kind of amazed when we had that um, 
interactive hearing with the president of the General Assembly in uh -huh. May. They invited me, you know, which ordinarily I probably wouldn't be the first person to be invited to come and yes. be on the panel. I was with, you know, the president of the Sami Parliament and a couple of state governments. But they wanted me to talk about the um, facilitated working group and what that represented in terms of participation. So it's kind of interesting that the states and the president of the UN General Assembly recognized the advance more than indigenous peoples did of why this was so different than anything we'd ever done before. Yeah. And I'm noticing that even in discussions on participation, it seems like states are saying, maybe they're saying, whoa, what did we let them do? You know? <laughs> <laughs> we better take credit for it, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really different. So that's why I, and of course, and people ask me if I would do it too. Got selected unanimously by you were never, North America. You were never asked to be a current forum member or extra member? No. Member? I refused to. You refused to? Absolutely. I don't want to be an independent expert. I'm not independent. So the difference is that this one is representative and. Yeah. And, to I, the and I think for those kind of UN bodies, that people like me are needed on the outside with mm. the indigenous people. I never wanted to be. Or the Emirates. Right. You know, it just oh, never. I, I want to be there and kind of hold them accountable and push them and help them and, you know, yeah. to be useful to us. Mm -hmm. uh, someone who knows kind of the history and the background needs to be there doing that. Right, yeah. And supporting indigenous peoples, you know trying to get something done in those bodies that mm -hmm. we created, really. Yeah. Um, but no, I never wanted to be. And it's a lot of work. I mean, I'm, I'm being asked to go all over the place, you know. I'm going to Scotland for the first time in October. Scotland. There's, there's um, something that started from this big um, climate change conference at Arizona State University about three years ago yeah. that I was a speaker at. And it had indigenous and non-indigenous peoples of all kinds talking about, you know, the issue, climate yeah. change. Academics and, you know, just a range. U.S. government, you know, everything. So out of that, um, some people involved in that started this thing called the Climate Heritage Mobilization. I'm going to send it out to people, and, and I'm just getting like the concept notes and yeah. stuff. But I agreed to be on the steering committee, and they had their first conference. It was a one-day meeting um, during the climate summit that happened in California, in San Francisco last okay. year. And we had some indigenous speakers and non-indigenous people from Scotland talking about how climate change, uh, how they're dealing with it, um, bringing some of their castles to you know, neutral carbon, you know, they, okay. they take oh. a lot of coal to heat, and also how some um, cultural heritage sites are, are being affected by climate change, too, sea level rise, or, you know, different things, so um, I agreed to be on, they're kind of having a, a kickoff meeting in Edinburgh, Scotland, in this castle, um, in October, and they asked me if I would go, and they would, you know, help me with the ticket and yeah, all that. Yeah. 
said, yeah, I've never been to Scotland. Of all the places, like, I felt that way about the Amazon when I got to go. It's uh -huh. like, all the places, usually places don't excite me very much because I travel so much. But mm -hmm. There are a few places that I don't think about going, but when it comes up, I say, wow, yeah, I'd yeah. Like to see that. So, and I think since it's mainly non-indigenous, I think it's important that they get to hear our perspective and they want me to come and talk, you know, about what the facilitated working group is. Because, yeah. you know, we may need their support, too. These Definitely. Are, yeah, these are people that go to, you know, the cops and, and are engaged in different parts of the climate change movement and, and, uh, and not necessarily the indigenous part that we're very familiar with, right? No, of course. So I, I kind of think that it was an interesting thing to do. Yeah. But it's part of, I think, what we need to be doing as a facilitated working group. Just like why I needed to be here this time instead of New York. Everybody's in New York. And yes. I wish them well. I think it's, you know. Mm -hmm. I was at the preparatory meeting in Mexico a couple of weeks ago, so yeah. I got my my things in there. Yeah. But mainly I was focused on here and what the Human Rights Council as a state body should say about climate change right. you know, and, so, and no. human rights. How do you then, how do you choose between meetings that you go to? Sometimes you have to prioritize uh, a meeting, like what, what is... That's a good question. How do you do that? My yeah, timing. take your time. <laughs> take a zip of your... Uh,
because we also have things to do to keep the organization going. I do. Yeah. We have to write grants and we have to make sure the insurance is, you know, there. I mean, all of the different stuff, the phone bill, <laughs> the computers, all of that mm -hmm. has to be addressed. Yeah. So we have a student interns, you know, from the university and how to, you know, keep them on track. So for myself, I look at a couple things. Uh, for, for IHEC, first of all, I look and see, you know, what will not happen as well in my assessment if we're not there, you know? Uh, the second thing is what really pertains to our work. It's not everything that's, in, is, that's important is stuff we do. Like we've never really participated in the uh, Commission on Women work at the UN. We just, we haven't. We just can't. Uh, and we decided to pull back a few years ago from the um, uh, Convention on Biodiversity work. Um, just because it seemed like there were a lot of indigenous people there. We just re-engaged in the last year and a half with the white coat work. Yeah. At the request of other indigenous peoples and also finding, I have to find a person who I think will be really effective there. And understands it. You know, unless I'm talking about training someone new, but a lot of these bodies aren't really for that, you know. Yeah. Or if you have money to send two people, you know, that's something else. Yeah. But sometimes you have to send your most skilled people. And for me, it's also what do I feel my personal presence is going to make a difference? At? Like mm. here at this Human Rights Council. I didn't feel that way about New York with the climate summit and all that. We have other people who are there and they'll do great. Jimmy Yazi and others. Mm -hmm. It'd be fantastic. But for instance, right now for the Human Rights Council, I felt like my personal participation on behalf of IITC would make a difference for how it came out. Right. So that's kind of how I have to look at it. You know, mm. what fits our, our strategic plan? What really is our work? compared to work other people are doing. You know, what are we going to make a difference, you know, by being there? Um, you know, what what do we have to do rather than what we want to do, I guess you could say. You know, just like I heard somebody say, I really liked it, um, that when we're doing this work, we have to be able to tell the difference between people that um, want to win and people that have to win. You know, what do we have to be there for versus what would we like to be here? Even if we say, well, we could probably help with that situation. Is this our particular mandate to take care of? And will our presence make a difference? Right. You know, pro or con. What, mm -hmm. you know, so that's how we make decisions. But I don't just make it for me. I'm going to make it for everybody in the organization. Yeah. Of course, we have limited resources in terms of finances and, and individuals, mm -hmm. um, so we have to really think strategically, build on the last victory, um, and, and go where we're going to make a big difference. And my favorite thing to do is kind of open up new terrain, you know, create new mechanisms, you know, get people talking about things they weren't talking about before, like yeah. international repatriation. It's, it's such an element of inter intergenerational trauma. Yeah. How were these things taken from us? What were we going through at the time? Yeah. 
you know, it brings up a lot of things. How did they, how did they get away with digging up graves and or cutting off Maori heads and taking them to the museum here in Geneva? That's the last thing they repatriated is the head of a of a Maori person with you know their tattoos. They like that stuff, mm -hmm. right? like leopard markings or something like yeah. that. Leopard skins. To them. So you know we have to look at, at opening doors that others then can go through. And you know, we're the first indigenous organization to have consultative status at the UN. We're still the only ones with general consultative status because yeah. we're kind of working so many different bodies. Mm -hmm. You know, the work on toxics, um, the, you know, getting the case of the Committee on the Rights of the Child when they were reviewing Mexico that launched them working on what they call environmental health. They didn't have that concept before. Mm -hmm. You know, under Article 24 of the convention, yeah. that um, the right to a clean environment is a right protected for children under the convention. Yeah. You know, Treaty Council did that work. And I like to talk about all the stuff we've done, but, I, but strategically, you know, we have to look at what will make the biggest difference if we participate? And I look at it for myself, too, because frankly, I'd rather be home. I really would. Really? Really. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Absolutely. That's my favorite place. Hmm. You know? My husband and participating in the culture. We have a ceremony today I'm missing. Yeah. And cooking a million tortillas. Of course, know? yeah. I didn't get to cook. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah, I would rather be home. There's no doubt about it. Hmm. And Absolutely. How do, uh, how, how do you how do you pick then the person that you? Yeah, let's. Oh, let's see. That what? Like, so you prioritize the meetings, um, but you also have to. Um, there, I know there's a better word for it. Um, select persons for a certain uh, a certain meeting. So, like, how, what is that the, the, the process that you go through? Is it like who's available, or I don't no. I don't think so. No, not who's available. Of course, if they're not available. Okay, yeah. Then I work with them on what else they were doing and what is of the most strategic importance, yeah. you know, for the organization. Because it's not about individuals; it's about the organization. And we are a collective. We make decisions by consensus on the board level, but in terms of organizational um, executive authority, I have it. And uh, so sometimes we just have to make a decision, you know, because we don't have an inexhaustible amount of people. And if it's something we have to pay for, that's a big factor too. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. how, how is that compared to other things we have to pay for, like... The electric bill or stuff, yeah, or, you know, so. like that. So, um, I usually talk about it, you know, with the person that whose work area fits, um, and talk about the plan, and, and you know, is there somebody else? Because we have kind of a wide range of board members and you know people who are just coming into the work, but you know how people are recruited to work for Treaty Council. I don't know how to say it, but I can tell an IGC person within probably 60 seconds. <laughs> they may not come on board 100%, uh -huh. 
that fast, but I can tell. What is the IITC DNA then? <laughs> what, what's uh, like? What is super dedicated to the sport? Okay. You right. know, um, there, there's just something in the attitude, you know, positive attitude, maybe. Um, I, I, it's hard for me to put my finger on it, you know? Are you, are you looking for yourself in other people? Is it that no. a, a little bit, or is it... I don't think about It's a question, myself. it's not an assumption of it. No, like a, okay. no, it's, I don't. Um, for example, Amy Juan, who's Tone Autumn, she's our office manager. Okay. I had no idea if she would be a good office manager. She actually is, but I wasn't sure about that, because that's not right. what everybody's going to be good at, right? But I was attracted when we, when I realized we were getting an office, she um, paid for herself to go to the treaty conference and corn conference in Oklahoma, and then the treaty conference um, and food sovereignty conference in, in uh, Hawaii. Mm. She raised her own money through, okay. you know, she's not a person with money. Yeah. And, and she came with another guy over to Hawaii, you might remember her. Um, mm. But... Yeah, Rochelle drove down um, from Minnesota all the way to Oklahoma, which is probably at least more than a day, you know, <laughs> wow. drive, to, just to hand me her resume and tell her, come to a conference we were doing, a human rights conference, mm -hmm. but tell me that when she graduated, we had got her master's degree in international human rights law working with Macon Davis in Australia. Oh, yeah, right, yeah. She... She said she was like looking on, on the internet for where she could possibly work to do the kind of work, and it just treaty council kept popping up. Yeah. International Union Treaty Council. So she drove down, and I sent her to talk to Jackie, who was exhausted after she'd just been dealing with this conference. I said, Go talk to see that lady over there, go tell her you're interested. I said, Okay, if she can withstand Jackie. <laughs> when Jackie's like exhausted and crabby and just wants to go home and packing up her car with all the boxes and stuff, mm -hmm. then I'll see I'll see how she does. Oh, okay. <laughs> and she was willing to move to San Francisco when she'd never been there before. Okay. That's another thing. I yeah. want to see people that are kind of over and above the call of duty, have an adventurous spirit, but they're not reckless, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, really believe in this work yeah. um, and, and have a special attraction, even though I've, I've kind of recruited people that really didn't know much about Treaty Council, like Saul Vicente Vasquez, yeah. You know? yeah, I met him in Geneva and it took us a while to right. get to the point. Is, is it, well, I'm sorry I'm making this assumption, uh, but is it like almost like safe to say that you're more looking for like Personal personality traits over um, background, as in like, well, what did you study? And maybe in part, yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. so. Um, it's a plus if they, you know, have some background in the in the issues, but more of a desire to do justice, you mm. know. Um, Rigoberta Menchu told me one thing a long time ago when she was on our board. She was on the board? Yeah, she was on the board and Pancho was her alternate. Rigoberta was our first Latin America board member. She's mm. on the board like from 1981, 82. Okay. That's how I met her. Well, yeah. I, I met her when she just first came up here uh, 
when she was exiled from Guatemala. Right, yeah. But um, she said in Spanish, she said, um, there, there are three things you need uh, to, to look for in somebody you hire. One is that they have a sense of responsibility. I'm saying this in Spanish. Second is they understand the seriousness of the work. And the third is that they're sano, which means kind of mentally and physically healthy. Mm. Or sane, would yeah. be, you know, but like, yeah, I okay. said, how about two out of three? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that was her, it was good advice, too. She said, you can teach somebody, you know, any of the rest of it, but you can't give them, you can't teach them those things. They have yeah. to have that already. And since most of the places I meet people are in this work, there's already, you know, an assumption that they have an interest. But mm -hmm. I don't know. There's something. Um, Treaty Council people really love each other too. Really, you know. There's like a we we have, we have very little turnover, and there's kind of a high degree of personal affection mm -hmm. and respect. Not that we don't sometimes, you know. But heads, but the people yeah. who don't have that quality don't usually stay. Yeah. You know, I can think of one of who I would say. <laughs> oh. oh, I've been, well, I've been lucky enough to be at, I think it was a three Treaty Council conferences. First one was in Panama. Oh, yeah. That was amazing. Um, second one, was when I parachuted in in yeah, Oklahoma, Oklahoma yeah. 2014 and our 40th anniversary yeah and then of course Hawaii uh, 2016 um, yeah but like right off the bat I remember in, in Panama that about there was just like a sense of a family that mm -hmm. that's we all came together and we all wanted to learn from each other and it was such a warm bath for me because I remember I think I, like a couple of weeks before we were in Geneva for the yeah for the Emirate back then and yeah of course that, that's totally different but then the Treaty Council conference it was such a warm bath to me and then met with, with Anaru Fraser and then, uh, and then we we, we Immediately hit it off, like some good friends, and yeah, and I could definitely attest to that, like to the to the the relationships that people have with each other, the, the affection that people have with each other. We have very uh, little turnover, which is pretty amazing. I mean, we have board members that were there when it was founded. I mean, passing away is the usual way that people leave city council. But really, it's true. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and uh, but yet it continues to grow and expand too. So how many affiliates do you have? Um, Approximately, I think. Well, a lot of our affiliates are themselves long, large networks. Like last uh, time, right. the, we had treat, the Confederacy of Treaty Six First Nations, which is Willie's organization, yeah. was a treaty council tag in there, got him in problems today because he was registered to speak under an AFN. Yeah. But um, treaties 1 through 11, 
all of all of the historic numbered trees in Canada affiliated as a group, and that alone is 243 distinct tribal governments, you know, treaty nation governments, like UFIC. Um, Saul's organization affiliates as UFIC, the Unidad de la Fuerza Indígena Campesina, and they're in 23 states in Mexico. Mm -hmm. You know, they have their members. That, so the CUDA General Congress, we're the only organization that they're affiliates with, you know? Yeah. So if you just look at like the main ones, the networks, I think it's a little over 100, but some of those themselves have hundreds. Yeah. And that's, they can't affiliate, even though Estupu from Guayala still says there, they were the first affiliate, you know, and they want to be counted as Estupu, that the Kuna General comes. You know, yeah. Now you're part of us and mm -hmm. we're all part of the same. So, you know, it, it's hard to pin, I mean, we have a list on our, on our website, and I think it's 105 or something. But then, of those, there's hundreds of affiliates somewhere, you know, in there. Yeah. CONAI, the Confederation of Indigenous Nations of Ecuador, yeah. is an affiliate as CONAI. And they, I think, have 43 tribes that are part of that. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So it's big. It's big. And, yeah. and you know, especially because we take no government money at all, it's hard to keep the, the funding going to you know, do what we you know, say, well, they'll be next time. You know? yeah, yeah. So, right as it is now, a lot of times our way is paid places because people want us there. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like all the FAO, Committee on Food Security, all that is funded. Yeah. Um, my work, you know, for the, the facilitated working group is funded, even though they didn't pay for us to stay for the first for week. For the first week, yeah. Even though they, we, they, we had nothing but drafting sessions and we had to go to all these meetings and yeah. that's what I'm saying is you know we need to at least pay for the group to stay the first week because there's all these assignments yeah you know they, ne they never consulted with you like all right this is the, the agenda that we are proposing so they I never think, did that I think they figured maybe we would finish with the work plan there that weekend which was a stupid idea you know, we, we, were, we, were, we had a six-hour meeting that last Friday to huh. finish with the work plan with no food. <laughs> I mean, they, the secretariat went in their little kitchen and tried to, you know, find it was like stale piece of cake. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we had six hours straight um, to finish. And some the Pacific people weren't there. Daily called in, Yeah. you know. Mm. But... Yeah, it was, uh, Hindu wasn't there, they took, I don't know what happened to the African delegates, they took off, you know, yeah. but I think they didn't really anticipate we would, we, we had to attend a lot of meetings during the week, too, mm -hmm. plus the caucus expects that we go to those meetings, too, mm -hmm. I think just a couple of us were, you know, yeah. faithfully there the whole time, mm -hmm. so, I don't know, it's, it's, um, 
you know, some things work really well, some things are trial and error. Yeah. But look how far we've come in all these years. I mean, this is our next conference next year in Aotearoa is going to be our 46th anniversary conference. Wow. So yeah, that's not a lot of organizations can say that. No, I know that. A lot have come and gone. Yeah. You know, since we first started. Will you do it? Sure. Yes, thank you. Lovely, wow. thank you. It's a good creme you lay. And you? Yeah, me too. Oh, wait, let's see. Okay. Yeah, a lot of these organizations, like they, a lot of people as, as well, they, they come in, attend one or two meetings, and then they're, they're gone. And, and that is something that's, that I see ha that happens a lot, actually. It happens more. And if you go, I'm, well, I'm lucky enough that I attended like a lot, several perform sessions and Emerald sessions in a row, but you do see that people that attend like two or three times, mm -hmm. then they're, they're gone. Well, you know, the UN work is not for everybody either, you know? That person. It's not, it's not, um, it's not what some people like. No. I remember the first time I, saw, I sent um, Hini Wirangi to a meeting of the Convention on the Rights of the call. Child. Are we calling him or? Hello? No, I think Keith. He's oh. in the ceremony tonight. Nicole called me. Let me see what she needs. That's it. That's the end of the episode. Um, hope you enjoy the podcast, of course. Um, do me a favor and open your browser. Go to linktree slash gomaluku. So that's linktr.ee slash gomaluku if you're a watcher i'm also posting youtube if you're a reader i got you on medium um don't have a lot of time i got you on instagram twitter and tiktok um on all these platforms i'm documenting and posting content um so you'll find all these links on the link tree slash gomaluku so let's connect on these platforms i really appreciate all of you that i'm already connected with on these platforms. Um, thank you so much and have a great day.